Listen to League of Ordinary Gentlemen podcast episode two ten. I'm Matt Derson. I'm Josh Lingle. Clay Inferno. And very, very special guest. This is probably like the podcast I'm most excited about ever in the history of all our podcasts. Gary K. Wolf is with us tonight, the creator uh, of many things, but of course, primarily the one you're most famous for, Roger Rabbit. Thank hey, you. How you doing, guys? Nice, nice to be here. Hey, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I know, like you said, you've been kind of under the weather lately, so thank you for taking the time out to talk to us and all three of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> always happy to talk to the three Roger Rabbit fans in the world, you know? Right, that's right. Well, I'm excited. Include us, that's six, so here we go. Oh, that's six. Oh, we've doubled, uh, we've doubled the audience. Oh, my God. All right, now let's let's be serious. Now there are. <laughs> it's hard for me to do, but I'll. <laughs> all right, all right. But I mean, there are there must be zillions of Roger Rabbit fans. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting for me because when the movie came out uh, back in '88, the the fan base was um, it was a broad spectrum. It, it ranged from you know young children. Uh, up to you know grown-ups and and as the years passed um, I found that the people who watched it as children kind of grew up and had children of their own and then used the Roger Rabbit movie as a babysitter <laughs> and I, I would go to I would go to fan conventions and I would find that for a while my fan base was getting older and then all of a sudden it started getting younger. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's all because Roger makes the, the perfect babysitter movie, and kids watch it over and over again. He's like the, like the uh, uh, Barney the Dinosaur of oh, uh, yes. well, oh, he's, videos. He's better than that, I think. He, yeah, he's, he's a lot better than that. A little more fun. I mean, well, it's funny. It does have something for everyone. I mean, you know, the kids obviously enjoy it because it's it's like the cartoon and the, the, that kind of humor. But, I mean, it's got a lot of... Uh, it's PG, you know. There's a lot of. Uh... It's actually, I think it's actually PG thirteen. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, see, there we go. That's that called Steven Spielberg rating. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you guys a little insight. You you can all go home and slap it in your DVD player tonight and watch it. But uh, there's a little something that animators do called gags in the margin, nice. and um, animation is a very very time consuming. Uh, and ultimately, you know, f- boring process. <laughs> you're spending hours and hours and hours doing essentially the same drawing with a, just the slightest variation. So the animators kind of like to have fun while they're working. I mean, who doesn't? And <laughs> animators 
really early on, and I'm talking about back in the 1917, 18, when they were doing Out of the Inkwell and, you know, some of the early, early animation stuff, animators realized that film goes through a camera at 24 frames a second. That's the optimum uh, number of frames that you have to project on a screen yes. to get the illusion of motion. If you project less, it gets jerky. If you project more, human eye can't tell the difference. So that 24 frames per second is the optimum. So an animator has to animate 24 you know, drawings or cells, you know, as they call them, uh, 24 cells uh, per second in order to match up to the 24 frames per second that are going through the camera. Well, animators real early on discovered that they could screw around with six of those 24 cells <laughs> and nobody could tell the difference. Six. That's, that's a magic number. Six, six out of 24 is a magic number. So they started doing these really kind of bizarre things in animated movies in six cells. And uh, nobody knew they were there except for the projectionists in movie houses who would go uh-huh. through the film and, and, you know, look for the six and sometimes cut out one or whatever, whatever. Well, when they were doing the Roger Rabbit movie, um, you know, the animators, of course, all know this. And uh, they, they decided that they wanted to do uh, a gag in the margin. And they wanted to do an homage to Max Fleischer, who was the guy who oh, did cool. Benny Boop. And it turned out that in every Betty Boop cartoon ever made, whenever Betty Boop says, boop, boop, ba doop, the front of her dress falls down, her breasts are exposed, she then reaches up, picks up the front of her dress, and puts it back. Six frames, every Betty Boop cartoon. Wow. So the animators said, I think that's pretty hilarious. And yeah, that's no, that's, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to... Well, so the animators, so the animators said, "Hey, l- let's do an homage to Max Fleischer." So when Betty Boop says to Eddie Valiant, "I still got it, ain't I, Eddie?" Boop boop ba doop, front of her dress falls down. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Four, five, six. So if I pause the DVD, like, uh, wait a minute, oh, oh, oh. only the beginning of the, only the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> so, um, so they take it to Steve, you know, Steve Spielberg, and they say, "Hey, Steve, you know what?" What do you think? And Steve said, "Well, it's pretty funny, you know." And and can we? And they said, "Can we leave it in?" He says, "Yeah, you can leave it in." They said, "Can we do more?" <laughs> well, yeah, you can do more, but nothing R-rated. Yeah, it's a PG-13 movie. It all has to be PG-13. So the guys go ahead, and, and the and the women, and they they do tons of these. There are tons of these throughout the movie, and. Uh, of course, you got to remember when this came out in '88. This was this was kind of on the cusp of uh, video cassettes. I mean, video mm-hmm. cassettes were, were around, but they weren't a big deal. Uh, they certainly didn't have DVDs. They certainly right. didn't have anything like that. So, and uh, Stephen had no intention as the producer. Stephen had no intention of ever releasing this on video or is it and, and, you know there wasn't any DVD, but he had no intention of releasing on video because disney disney's policy was to re-release these things every seven years theatrically oh uh, yes of course so yeah. you know who's ever going to see these right <laughs> so uh you know time goes by and uh steven uh had the same um 
the same intention with E.T., but he finally relented, released E.T. on VHS and made a gazillion yes. dollars on it. So he said, well, you know, maybe we'll release Roger Rabbit, too. <laughs> so he did. And they had all the VHS tapes made, ready to ship, all packaged up. When Frank Marshall, who was one of the line producers, went on one of the late night shows, I think it was, I think she was still Johnny Carson in those days. But yeah, could, yeah uh, I think so. Uh, could have been, it was probably Johnny Carson. And he was, you know, he's talking about the big release of, uh, you know, Roger Rabbit on VHS. And he told the Betty Boop story. Uh-oh. And uh, oh, he let the cat out of the bag. Uh, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> We've got a topless woman. <laughs> In a PG-13 movie. <laughs> but it's animated. I mean, it's... Yeah, but... All right, all right. All right. So they, they recalled all those VHS cassettes. Oh, my God. Destroyed them. And they... Destroyed them? No, man. If you had one of those. They took out the Betty Boop topless scene, and they, they you know, they recut them. Well, they didn't... They didn't know about the 50 other <laughs> things that are in the movie. For instance, at the beginning of the movie, when baby Herman walks under that woman's dress, if you slow that down and watch it frame by frame, you will see that his his middle finger is extended as it goes under her dress. <laughs> it comes down, he's got this... this satanic leer on his face oh. <laughs> and uh, when uh, when Eddie Valiant goes into that restroom and has no floor if yes. you look up on the wall uh, you will see written on the wall of the restroom for a good time call Snow White <laughs> <laughs> and, the phone, and the phone number underneath it was Michael Eisner's home phone number oh jeez <laughs> so awesome. you know there were plenty of those throughout. All right, yeah, so you lost the Betty Boop, but we well, lost the Betty Boop. But there were plenty of others. The, tons one, of them. the one that finally brought it all brought it all to the forefront. Um, people when it when it finally came out on DVD and people could watch it frame by frame. People watched it frame by frame, looking for gags in the margins, and and the one that they found uh, that caused the sensation was the one where Jessica Rabbit is in Benny the Cab with Eddie Valiant, and they're coming out of Toontown, and they hit the dip, and Benny the Cab uh, smacks into the light pole, and Jessica and Eddie Valiant go sailing through the air. And uh, when you when you freeze frame that and look at it, he, first of all, you can see that plainly Eddie Valiant is a dummy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not in real life, Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins, no. God rest his soul. A dummy. Yeah. Uh, and Jessica does this airborne somersault uh, cartwheel where uh, her hair fans out and her dress fans out to match her hair. It's just beautiful animation. And as she's at the apex of the of the cartwheel, her legs open up, and you can see she has no underwear. Ah. So, you know, now Disney's, you know, people, people are, are, are talking about this and it's not like, it's not like she's a real woman, right? It's like looking yeah. at your Barbie doll. It's not like she has, you know, anything there that's salacious, but <laughs> Disney says, oh my God, now we've got a bottomless woman in a piece of <laughs> And so they immediately want to assess, uh, you know, to lay off blame on this. And so they said, well, 
what happened was we had this movie duped on a DVD in Taiwan, and it was a rogue Chinese animator <laughs> who painted out Jessica's panties. Oh, my God. Uh, but, you know, that wasn't going to fly. So <laughs> finally, um, they, uh, they said, well, it was done by a rogue animator here in the United States. We're going to find out who did it. We're going to hunt him down, and we're going to make sure he never works in the animation industry again. Uh, uh, Everybody knew that the guy who did that was Rob Minkoff, and Rob Minkoff had just directed The Lion King. uh, (laughs) And so there was no way they were going to hound him. uh, Yeah, you'll never work this down. Yeah, you just made one of their most successful movies. (laughs) So anyway, now you guys can go home and slap that DVD on. uh, Oh, I'm definitely doing that. Yeah. Wow, so... Can we say so you mentioned? Yeah, Michael Eisner's phone number in there. Can he? Can we talk? I mean, Eisner was the guy that kind of uh, brought this all together, right? I mean, he was he the one originally. Yeah, I, 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 what happened was uh, Roy Disney bought the rights to the book back in 1980. Oh yeah. Uh, before it actually even came out as a book, somebody at uh, St. Martin's at my publishers sent uh, a copy of the galleys. To Roy Disney, and I, I tried to find out who, so that I could, you know, kiss him or her full on the lips. <laughs> uh, I, I never found out who did that, and uh, um, you know, the, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of movie studios have uh, basically spies at publishing companies to send them early, uh, early looks at, at material that they might be interested in, and this was one of those cases. Um, and Roy Disney called me up at, at home one night, and you know, I answered the phone, and guy on the other end says, "Hi, is this Gary Wolf?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "Hi, this is Roy Disney from Walt Disney Studios." I said, "Yeah, right." <laughs> it's Classic. Really? No, no, no. It's really Roy Disney from Walt Disney Studios. I said, "Yeah." He says, and, "And I just read your book, and of course the book hadn't come out yet, right?" <laughs> So yeah, right. So we want to make it into a movie. Would you be interested in that? Well, you know, he finally convinced me it was indeed Roy Disney, and they paid me more money for the rights to it than I'd ever made for everything I'd ever written put together. Um, <laughs> and I said sure. So uh, you know, that was 1980 before the book came out. They started trying to put it together as a as a movie, and they they needed this movie because in 1980. Uh, Disney was becoming a second-rate movie studio. They were making movies like the Black Hole and the uh, you know Flubber and Herbie mm. and then uh, the Black Cauldron, which disappeared down the black hole. That's right. <laughs> uh, they, they were doing movies that were intended to be the bottom half of double features, of which there were no more. Uh, <laughs> and they had been offered Star Wars, and they turned it down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they offered tea and they turned it down. Uh, you know, they needed something that they, was going to catapult them back into the front ranks of movie makers. They thought they, they thought Roger Rabbit was the movie. Plus, um, you know, Disney makes a tremendous amount of money uh, on non-movie items like pencil boxes and sweatshirts and T-shirts and goofy hats and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. And, you know, their character stable. Uh, needed some refreshing. Um, you know, Mickey had become kind of the corporate spokesmouse, and he, you know you couldn't really have a lot of fun with him anymore. 
Uh, you still have fun with Donald, but you couldn't understand what he said. So, uh, <laughs> you know, he was kind of out of it. They really wanted, they wanted Roger. Uh, they wanted the characters. They wanted the new characters. So um, they started trying to produce the movie. And, uh, you know, they, they, they were regarded as a second-rate film studio. And that, that really showed uh, they, they couldn't get... They couldn't get the horsepower behind this movie to really hmm. get it produced and get it right. Uh, you know, they, they made some test screenings of uh, live action animation, some of which were pretty good, but, um, you know, they couldn't get the money committed to it. Um, it just wasn't working. So, you know, after a couple of years, I mean, this was 1980, 81, 82, after a couple of years, they came to me and they said, hey, look, you know, the the live action animation thing isn't working. What would you say if we did it uh, with costume characters like we have at Disneyland? You know, and uh, so you, you know, we'll have like Haley Mills playing Jessica and uh, Fred Murray as Eddie Valiant. And oh, geez, you know, doesn't that kind of compromise the premise just a little bit? Uh, you know, cooler heads prevailed and. They, they, just, they, you know, they saw the error of those ways. Well, you know, nothing much happened until it was probably 85, 84, 85, um, when Michael Eisner came. And uh, he brought in Jeff Katzenberg as head of film production. And they had worked together at 20th Century and lots of other places. And, you know, the first thing they did, which is the first thing that any studio uh, exec does when they take over a studio is they threw out every project they had under development because that's what got the previous management into trouble. So they threw out everything they had under development except for one, Roger Rabbit. They kept that because they realized they needed they needed that movie. Uh, they, they did something that nobody at Disney had ever done before, which was they uh, which was to go outside and get an outside producer to come in and. Uh, you know, produce this movie for Disney instead of using their internal producers and their internal production staff. And that guy that they went out to get was, of course, Steve Spielberg, um, who they both had worked for, worked with before. And Steven had read the book when it came out in 1981. He'd read it and thought it would make a terrific movie, as had um, Bob Zemeckis, who wound up directing it. And Bob Z uh, was offered it as a directing assignment back in 1981. And, you know, he took a look at the Disney hierarchy and the you know the disney management staff and didn't really believe that they could ever bring it to bring it to, to to fruition so you know he went off and directed back to the future and romancing the stone and a, you know a couple uh, other little yeah, a couple other but um they brought in steve spielberg and of course the first thing that steve did was to go to Bob Z and say, hey, you, you know, you want to direct this movie, and I'm, you know, I'm behind it, and I'm going to produce it, and Bob Z said yes. So, um, yeah, it started with Michael Eisner, uh, Steve Spielberg. You know, how can you, how can you go wrong with Steve Spielberg? <laughs> well, right. I give all the credit for the Roger Rabbit movie, or a good deal of it, to uh, the unsung hero uh, Jeff Katzenberg. Uh, Jeff Katzenberg, uh, you know, was the head of Disney film production. And shortly after he took over that position, he published the famous Katzenberg memo. And the Katzenberg memo said, in essence, 
we're not we're not going for the home runs anymore. We're not going to spend a ton of money looking for the home run. We're going to do singles, doubles, and maybe the occasional uh, hard fought triple. But I am <laughs> never ever. Well, I'm at Disney. I'm never going to make a movie that costs more than sixteen million dollars. So it's in you know nineteen eighty five, and uh, shortly thereafter. We sat down for the first production budget meeting with Steve Spielberg for Roger Rabbit. And the preliminary budget for Roger Rabbit, uh, Bob Watts, who was the line producer, said, you know, the preliminary budget for this is $35 million. <laughs> I'm projecting it's going to go higher. Oh, of course. And, and Katzenberg had just published his Katzenberg memo. I'm never going to make a movie for more than $16 million. So, you know, either he was going to have to split this movie in half and make two movies uh, <laughs> or not make it at all. But he didn't bat an eye. And he said, okay, he says $35 million. He said, just make sure it's worth it. Just make sure it's good. Wow. And the budget kept going up. Uh, he Kept seeing, he kept seeing the dailies. He kept seeing what was going on. The budget kept going up: 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60. The the official budget wound up being somewhere around seventy eight million. It was probably higher than that, but uh, official in quotes. Officially, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and and nobody really knew if this movie was going to be a success. Nobody, you know, the 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 day it premiered, it premiered at Radio City Music Hall in, in New York City. The day it premiered, nobody knew if this was a kid's movie or an adult movie. Nobody knew <laughs> who was going to come to see this movie. And uh, had this movie failed, it, Katzenberg would have would have lost his job. Oh he would have been would have been soundly embarrassed in the industry. Uh, you know, I'm never going to make a movie more than sixty million dollars, and here's a seven, seventy-eight million dollar movie that's, uh, you know, uh, Howard the Duck redo. You know, <laughs> I, I give him the credit for it because he kept signing the checks, and he kept seeing that this was this was something that Disney not only wanted to do but had to do. I mean, it's hard to imagine now Disney being Disney, but back then, yeah, it was a different different ballgame. No, oh, you. Um, you are still, I don't know how much we can get into the production a little bit, but I want to, like, you still retain the publishing rights to the books. You, you didn't sell them the, the whole character or anything like that. No, it's, uh, I, I got to tell you, I mean, if you, if you look at the contract uh, that I have with Disney, it's probably longer than any than any book I've ever probably longer than every book I've ever written together. Uh, it's a it's a it's a very complex uh, complex situation. I, I sold them the rights to the first uh, to the first book, which was Who Censored Roger Rabbit. Right. Um, and uh, they changed the title to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which uh, I I have no objection to that. I think framed had I thought of that, it would have been a much much better title. They were afraid of using censored in the title of the hmm. movie for fear that people would uh, think that it was a dirty movie. And um, <laughs> um, so you know they want the rights to the book, and then of course they designed the characters, what the characters look like. So. Th- it, it's kind of a three-way dealie, you know, me, Spielberg, and Disney kind of, uh, you know, have rights to what the characters look like. If I want to use Roger, like on the cover of a book, or if I want to use him somewhere, 
I can't just use what he looks like because that's the Disney Spielberg Roger. Mm. I have to go to them and you know request their permission, which they usually always give me. Um, they don't own the publishing rights. So, uh, you know, I I wrote Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which they bought. Uh, I wrote uh, Who Plugged Roger Rabbit, which was the sequel mm-hmm. novel. Uh, we standardized on the five-piece stutter. <laughs> I wrote that. Uh, they bought the film rights to that. Oh. Um, I, that was 1991. Huh. Uh, I just now uh, wrote Who Whacked Roger Rabbit. And uh, and published who whacked Roger Rabbit. Plus, uh, over the over the years, I've written five or ten uh, short stories and uh, short novels, novelettes with Roger and Jessica. Well, like, yeah, I've heard that they don't kind of they don't do business like that anymore, really. From what oh, I understand, well, they, they, they've got a clause now called the Wolf Clause. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they put in every contract they sign with uh, with any author. Uh, and, and the wolf clause states that they have all the rights, and uh, you know you sell them the rights, and you got no rights. But uh, you know, I signed my contract with Roy Disney back in the back in the golden days when uh, Roy really liked authors and he liked writers, and and uh, um, it, it was it was not a, a problem. I, you know, in fact, when we were negotiating the contract, uh, my my agent. Sent the contract to. Uh, I didn't send it. He gave it to uh, a young woman who was a, a, a newly a, a newly barred lawyer, and uh, she had joined his literary agency uh, just you know as her first job, and, and he gave it to her, and he said, "Just look at the punctuation and the spelling, and make sure that there's." There's not no commas that are going to get us into trouble down the line. <laughs> and, but she read the contract and she said, "Oh, you know, they're paying them. They're paying them a they're fairly you know, sizable amount of money here. But really, it's probably never going to be a never going to be a movie because most of them aren't. So I suggest that we put in a paragraph saying that he retains the rights to the characters. The characters <laughs> are making his and." My agent said, oh, Disney will never go for that. And she said, well, I think we owe it to him to try. So um, they put that clause in the contract, and Roy Disney said, sure, why not? Wow. <laughs> Sign the the I did kiss her full on the lips. <laughs> oh, <that's>, <laughs> from <laughs> yeah, the mouths of babes. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, I don't, you told me a story. I met I, you obviously probably don't remember, but many years ago, I, was, I, I saw you at a convention, and I, I, you told me a story. I don't even know if we should talk about this, but what the heck, right? Jeff Smith, who created Bone, went to, you know, got wined and dined by Disney. They said, well, okay, what we want to make Bone into a movie. What would you like? And he said, I want the Gary Wolf deal. And they said, no thanks, and just told them, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's, Check, yeah, that's, uh, yeah that, that, that's, I, I've, I've heard that story over and over again. Okay. Many, many, uh, many, many authors have gone to them and said, well, I want, I want the Wolf deal. And they said, well, there is no more wolf deal. That's, that's, <laughs> we learned our lesson on that. You know, but I, I got to tell you, um, it, it wasn't just the fact that I owned, that I owned the rights to the characters. Uh, they, once the movie really did get rolling, they really did seem to value um, my contribution and my creativity. And 
uh, you know, I would go to Disney. I would go to, uh, you know, to uh, to Burbank uh, where they were animating. I would go to to uh, England where they were they were animating. Uh, Dick Williams was a, a Canadian expat living in England, and uh, they set right. up a studio there. And whenever I walk in, it was like you know Moses coming down from the mountain carrying two stone tablets on which were writ large the word <laughs> Roger Rabbit. You know. I mean, <laughs> They really, they really seemed to value what I had done and the ideas that I had come up with, and I, you know, I would sometimes find myself in a room with, oh God, thirty-five of the most creative people I've ever met in my life, and they're all throwing out ideas on how to make my story better. Wow! And I'm thinking to myself, you know, why couldn't I've had these thirty-five people? sitting at my kitchen table with me at <laughs> five in the morning when I was writing the damn thing in the first place. And I, you know, I would have won the Pulitzer prize, <laughs> but you know, they, they took, they took really good care of me. They brought me to the premiere. Uh, they had the premiere at Radio City Music Hall in New York city. And, uh, I suspect it was, you know, they, they usually have their premieres in, in California. Uh, but I think they had that. So I wouldn't have to travel as far. Oh, that's um, great. And, um, you know, when, uh, it was the first time I'd actually seen the whole movie all put together because they were still working on it right up until the very end. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd never seen my credit on the screen. Uh, I'd never seen the movie start to finish. So, you know, they had a VIP section up on the balcony, and I sat down in the VIP section, and I had Kathleen Turner uh, sitting on my left, and I had Amy Irving, who was <laughs> Steve's wife at the time. Right sitting on my right and of course Kathleen was the voice of Jessica and Amy Irving was the singing voice of Jessica my god uh, you know I, and the lights are going down and I'm going to see my movie for the first time and I'm thinking to myself Jesus you know life just doesn't get any better than this and then life got better you know Kathleen <laughs> leaned over and put her hand on my leg <laughs> said Gary are you excited I said, Kathleen, you have no idea. <laughs> oh, perfect. So you did. I was. I had no idea how much you had to do with the production because um, the book is a lot different than the the movie. Yeah, the book's a lot different than the movie, and you know it has to be. Um, they, you know, they tried. Well, one of the reasons why they they could never really pull it together in the early days was because they uh, they tried to stay too close literally to what the book was uh in fact there was a time when they were going to have the the uh, in the book uh my characters are uh characters from some of them are from cartoons but the majority of them are from comic books and newspaper strips mm -hmm. yeah. and instead of talking in words they talk in word balloons and mm -hmm. you know as a literary con convention that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, when a, when a cartoon character says something, the balloon goes up and, you know, you have to read it. And, you know, if the cartoon character turns around, well, then you have to learn to read backwards because his balloon flips around with him. <laughs> and when a guy gets shot with a cartoon gun, it gives off a bang balloon. And a bang balloon, you can analyze that bang balloon. And depending on the size of it, you can tell the caliber of the gun that uh, that killed him. And, <laughs> That's so you know, cool. Ballistics, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, when, and when somebody plays uh, plays the piano, you know, the notes kind of come out and they're visible. And you can see them. And people will collect those notes and 
and I'll cut them up into eight by ten uh, sheets, and that's where sheet music comes from. <laughs> you know, you can do that kind of stuff. You, you can force a reader to use his or her imagination, and that's that's really what I'm good at doing. When you're doing a movie, it's all up there on a the screen. You know, you see it, and that's what it is. You don't have to use your imagination at all because it's right there for you to look at. Um, so they originally tried to use um, the word balloons, and they found that it really made it into a silent movie. <laughs> yeah, that seems you know, like yeah. the character would say something. You have to stop, let them read it. Um, they so you know that uh, that convention didn't last long. Um, <laughs> they they did. In the final movie, they did want to have an homage to the book. And uh, that homage was going to be Felix the Cat, who uh, was a uh, uh, character in comic strips and cartoons, probably in the 30s, 40s. I don't think he made it into the 50s. I love Felix. Of course, yeah. yeah. Felix the Cat and Ignatz the Mouse. Felix's uh, big deal he was he never talked. He never spoke. And so in the movie... <clears throat> they had a scene uh, where uh, they went to Marvin Acme's funeral, and um, the pallbearers were like goofy and uh, you know a bunch of bunch of cartoon characters, and they couldn't stop laughing. They started giggling as their characters stop laughing, and they go past Felix the cat, and as the casket passes Felix the cat. He puts up a word balloon that says sob. <laughs> and the word balloon then turns to tears, which fall down uh-huh. on his shoulders. And it was a very, very sweet scene. Hmm. Um, they did the scene, but uh, they didn't put it in the movie for a couple of reasons. First of all, they, they, really, they really didn't know if this was going to be a kid's movie or an adult movie. And if it's a... Uh, kids movie rule of thumb is it can't be longer than 90 minutes so the movie was you know longer than 90 minutes so they wanted to cut it to bring it closer to 90 minutes so that it would be a kids movie if it was going to be a kids movie and that was one of the scenes they cut out but the other reason they had to cut that particular scene in Felix the Cat was because the Fleischer Studios who own uh, Popeye Felix the Cat uh, would not give them the rights uh, okay. to Popeye and Felix the Cat. And, and I, they're regretting that every minute. <laughs> every minute since. Um, well, speaking of that, if, uh, oh, sorry. There, I is, there is one there. I'll give you, give you a little gag in the margin here. There is one Excellent. that's through. When Eddie Valiant goes into Toontown, if you look at the lintel over the tunnel into Toontown, you'll see Felix the Cat. Ah, cool. So he is in there. He is in there. Uh, just, just to show you what a difference Steve Spielberg makes in Hollywood. Um, when Roy Disney was trying to get this movie produced, he uh, he went to Warner Brothers. And this was back in 1981. He went to Warner Brothers and said, hey, look, we're doing a live-action animated movie. And, you, you know, it's going to have cartoon characters interacting with real people. Uh, we want to have Bugs Bunny do a cameo. Right. And we want him to come out and say, what's up, Doc? And, you know, that's it. Three words. Warner Brothers lost. 
no way are we ever going to have Bugs Bunny appear in a, in a Walt Disney movie. It's just never going to happen. Forget it. So I think five years later, Steve Spielberg goes to Warner Brothers and makes the identical request. Yeah? We'd like to have Bugs Bunny come out and say, what's up, Doc? And he said, of course. <laughs> of course. You can do that was my next question. Is what, oh, is, how this what, about, what about Porky Pig? Don't you want him? And what about... What about uh, Yosemite Sam and, uh, you know, here, take them all. Take them well, all. Well, yeah, the scene with Daffy Duck and Donald Duck playing piano, it's got to be like just that's yeah. one of my favorite all time movie scenes. It's so iconic. It's so hilarious. Yeah, I'll give I was going to ask how they, how do they pull that off? But Stevens. Well, I'll give you another, uh, you know, cartoon characters are a lot like movie stars nowadays. Uh, they have agents and contracts. And contractually, this is contractual, all right? Bugs Bunny, because he's a major superstar on, on the level with Mickey Mouse. Bugs oh, yeah. Bunny is contractually required to be in every scene with Mickey. Uh, you not have uh, a scene uh. with Mickey without having Bugs. Yeah, so that scene with their parachute, the parachute. Yeah, is, uh... yeah that, well, that's a, and they have to have the identically same number of words of dialogue. <laughs> so it's someone's job to count all those. And yeah. So so gag in the margin. All right. You guys ready for a gag in the margin? I love this. I love yeah. it. If you if you go to your DVD player and look at that scene when they're parachuting down, you'll see that as they're parachuting down, if you run it frame by frame, you will see that Mickey is clearly giving Bugs the finger. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's all. okay. I'm definitely doing that tonight as soon as we. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there's there's a night wasted. <laughs> a couple of nights at least. Yeah, right. Looking for all these gags. I'm watching the whole movie. Pause. <laughs> yeah, well, that was my next question. So, I, I do want to. I don't know if anybody out there in television land here or in podcast land knows there are no computer animators. Obviously, there's no there's no computer animation in this movie. No, it's it, all hand drawn. Just hand drawn. I think I, I could be wrong. It could be the last hand drawn animated movie that Disney did. I, could be wrong on that. I don't know. But, uh, I don't follow that kind of stuff. Mm. But uh, it was all done by hand, all hand animation. And I think that's part of the charm of the movie. I think oh, it has a it has a real old style humanity to it that uh, to this point, computer animation just doesn't give you. No, it definitely does not. Uh, I I agree with that. But um, the other thing, so. So Roger Rabbit's a little different in your in your first book. Oh yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you got to remember. I mean, I started writing that that book uh, like nine years before it came out. I worked on it, worked on it, and um, you know, I I wrote that to be the best written fantasy adult fantasy novel that I was capable of writing. And then of course Disney came along and they had their own spin on it, and I. Uh, I think they I think they did a terrific job of taking what essentially was an unfilmable book mm. and making a, an incredible movie out of it. They they changed the story. Sure, I have no problem with that because the story had to change because the book story was a book story and the movie story was a movie story. What they didn't do was change the characters of the premise. I mean, mm. they could have made Roger Rabbit uh, Roger Raccoon. <laughs> You know, uh, Baby Howie instead of Baby Herman. But they didn't do that. They kept my characters. Hmm. Um, they, the, the, of course, um, uh, Dick Williams and, and the animators 
uh, Jack Muller and, and others. Yeah, he looks different. Yeah, they they they, they animated them and and made them real and made them something you could look at. But they pretty much stuck to my descriptions of them. Uh, you know, Jessica, I based Jessica on Tex Avery's Red Hot Riding Hood. Um, <laughs> and if you go to some of the old Tex Avery stuff, uh, Red Hot Riding Hood, Wild and Wolfy, um, you will see that in in actually two of them. I think they reuse the scene in two different cartoons. Uh, Red Hot does a, a dance sequence, a song and dance, and the dance sequence that she does in that cartoon is the exact same sequence that Jessica does in the Ink and Paint book. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And, but, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the, the, I had heard that Dick Williams sort of took bits of every, uh, like, Roger Rabbit has Mickey's gloves, and he's got like Droopy's little hair on top, and sort of. Well, uh, you got to realize that that comes yes. from the book, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. I gave I gave Roger like yellow hands, uh, uh, red overalls. Um, I gave him uh, pretty much like like what he looks like. Um, okay, so you except, did that intentionally. That's except I had him as I think a brown rabbit, and Dick Williams thought he would look better animated as a white rabbit. Uh, Dick also came up with that orange top knot just to give him uh, a little distinction, and I, you know, I got no problem with that. Um, hmm. And then Charlie Fleischer came along, who will be there Saturday, and I'm sure will. Yes, well, Sunday at uh, Comic Con in, in uh, Wilmington, I'm sure he'll tell the story. But um, he worked with Dick Williams to come up with a voice for Roger. And of course, I never had a voice for Roger because. Oh, he spoke in balloon. He spoke in balloon. Yeah. <laughs> and so I never had it. But now, whenever I hear Roger, it is, it is Charlie who, mm-hmm. whose voice I hear. But uh, Dick Williams believed that every successful animated character um, had a speech impediment. Like, Dave <laughs> with a stutter, Donald Duck with his... Uh, whatever, yeah. Whatever it is. <laughs> uh, so they worked on all kinds of speech impediments that they could have for Roger Rabbit. And finally, Charlie came up with a stuttering on P. Mm. You know, that's that's where it comes from. Charlie used to go to, you can ask him this when you see him, but Charlie used to go on set dressed in a Roger Rabbit costume. <laughs> because um, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome because uh, Bob Hoskins, and, and, you know, let's let's fall down on our knees and say a, say a silent prayer for for Bob Hoskins, one of the most creative guys I've ever met, died too young. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, my one regret about the movie, I, I, I only have one regret, and my one regret is that Bob Hoskins made what he did look so easy that nobody really appreciated it, and he never got an Academy Award nomination for that. Yeah, I mean, he's so sort of understated. Yeah, well, you, never get... you know, I, I saw him filming in an empty room with nothing but a green screen. And he was making it all up in his head and he made you believe it. Wow. You know, if you if you look at the scene where he's handcuffed to Roger, yes. if you look at that scene, freeze frame that one and look at that frame by frame. Those handcuffs are on a spring. <laughs> so Hoskins was not only controlling what he was doing with his hand, but the way he was moving his wrist he was controlling what Roger's arm was doing. 
Wow. And I, I mean, that's the, you, mm. you talk about rubbing your stomach and patting your head. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't even do that. Most people. Yeah, really. That's, yeah. that's the far as amazes me. Uh, you know, Hoskins had to remember when he picked the rabbit up by the ears to pick him up with his fingers closed. Because if he f- picked up the rabbit with his fingers open, they had to animate between his fingers, and that added an extra hundred thousand dollars a minute. Oh, jeez! <laughs> oh. Yeah. Wow. So he was controlling the budget too, in a way. He was controlling the budget, <laughs> in a way. and you know, at the end of the movie, uh, Hoskins swore that he could see the rabbit. He swore, and he swore to me that it took two to three months for that rabbit to finally vanish before he could no longer see it. I, wow. I, I hung out with Bob Hoskins when he, he came to Boston uh, a couple of years later to film Mermaids, and, and you know, we oh, hung out. Uh, just a tremendous, tremendous guy, very talented, very down-to-earth, um, and uh, I, I really miss him. I really miss him. I, I'm sorry that uh, sorry he's still not around making everybody laugh. Yeah, no, he was he was hilarious. Uh, as far as the, vo- I had originally I heard originally Paul Rubens was being considered for the voice before. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah they, you know there were tons and tons of people oh, who okay. were being considered for all kinds of things. Uh, Paul <laughs> Rubens at one time, uh, everybody for Eddie Valiant, everybody including me wanted Harrison Ford. Um, wow, I would. They wanted uh, <laughs> then then when he when he realized that the time it was going to take. Um, he passed, and then every uh, everybody, including me, wanted Paul Newman. Uh, but you know, he passed, and they started looking at other actors, and uh, they were looking at uh, um, uh, you know tons and tons of guys. But finally, they found the guy that was absolute perfect, Eddie Valiant, and that guy, of course, was uh, you know Bill Murray. And, <laughs> you know, they signed Bill Murray to be Eddie Valiant, and Bill Murray. Um, you know, I saw some of the test screenings, and Bill Murray just never made you believe that rabbit was real. He was always looking at that rabbit like, oh, my God, you're a talking rabbit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so finally they realized this wasn't going to work, so they paid him off, uh, gave him a million dollars, and he went on his way. Uh, so they continued uh, continued looking at, you know, other other actors. And they finally found the guy that was the perfect Eddie Valiant. And that guy, of course, was Eddie Murphy, right? <laughs> to bring in Eddie Murphy to be Eddie Valiant, right? And now everybody's rewriting the script to make Eddie Valiant funnier than the tunes. And, uh, yeah, now this this obviously wasn't going to work. So uh, they they gave Eddie Murphy, they paid him off. They gave him a million dollars and a Ferrari um, <laughs> to buy him out of his contract. Just do not. Through the movie, wow. yeah, I think you see why. I think you see how you make money in Hollywood. You know? Yeah. So, but in the meantime, over in another part of Hollywood, Brian De Palma was making The Untouchables, and he wanted Bobby De Niro to be Al Capone, but De Niro was unavailable, so he had Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins was Al Capone. Well, you know, shortly into the into the filming, um, Bobby De Niro calls up Brian De Palma and says. Hey, guess what? I, you know, I, I wrapped early. I can I can be in your movie. I can be Al Capone. So now Bob Hoskins has a million dollars and nothing to do with it. <laughs> and so he came and read for Roger Rabbit. And I, I don't think anybody really took him seriously when you know when 
they said, oh, Hoskins is coming in because he's British, for God's sake. And, and Eddie Valiant is the prototypical American private eye. I mean, this isn't going to work. But when he came in and started reading the lines, he was the only one who really made you believe that rabbit was real, even though there was nothing there. You could see that rabbit because he made you believe it was real. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So he was awesome. Just there. It's amazing. The Untouchables and Roger Rabbit connected in that way. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, and we can probably uh, uh, we can probably tie Kevin Bacon in here somewhere. Yeah, do the yeah, <laughs> 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 of, of Roger Rabbit. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So, <laughs> you know, I'm going to work on this. What I'm going to do tonight? All right. <laughs> I love it. I want to see it on Saturday when we when we see you at the convention. <laughs> Roger Rabbit, and we'll. We'll do that at Comic Con, and we'll we'll see how it works. I, I I think that's a great idea. I think that we can work on that. All right, so let me. Have, I know it's it's we're 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 close to the end here. Let me ask. So you you said it earlier. They bought the rights to the second book as well. Yeah. Are we gonna see any sort of? Oh God! Uh, <laughs> you know, the first one took from 1980 until 1988. Uh, they started working on the second one in 1991, and uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I haven't seen that one yet. It it it's gotten to be a little political. Uh, you know, Jeff Katzenberg left Disney under you know less than friendly circumstances. He formed a partnership with Steve Spielberg, uh, DreamWorks SKG, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, Steve still controls the production rights to Roger Rabbit. Uh, Jeff Katzenberg wasn't uh, wasn't that anxious to do anything that was going to make Disney another nickel. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it kind of fell off the radar for a while. Then all of a sudden, it, it came back on the radar again. You know, Steve Spielberg has now got a deal with Disney. He's got his offices on the Disney lot. Uh, uh, Frank Marshall, Kathleen Kennedy are back working with Disney. Uh, Bob C is, uh, you know, in good graces with Disney. Uh-huh. It goes through, it goes through peaks and valleys. And uh, my guess is, at last accounting, the last accounting I saw, Roger as a movie uh, has made close to a billion dollars. Oh wow! Doesn't wow. count. That doesn't count the income from Toontown. Uh, in Disneyland, it doesn't count the income from T-shirts and uh, snowshoes and whatever. Whatever <laughs> else, rabbit Lucky rabbit's feet. There we go. Oh, there's for some budding entrepreneur, a lucky rabbit, Roger Rabbit, rabbit foot. Um, so my guess is that eventually uh, money will always out in, in uh, Hollywood, <laughs> and sooner or later. You know, rule of thumb is that a sequel will make about three quarters of the amount of the original. My guess is that eventually it'll get made, but uh, whether I'm still around to see it, well, there's going to be a feel of vision and smell of vision, and yeah, it could be. Well, you know, and, and, and the premiere will be on the moon. I I, I don't know. I, can't. Well, I hope they invite you again. I, I hope, especially the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Let's plug everything here before we before we before we go. We'll all be at the uh, the Comics Expo. The uh, is it the Northeast Comics Expo? Northeast Comics. The Northeast Comics Expo and Collectibles Extravaganza. That's right. <laughs> that is a long title, but it's this weekend, December sixth and seventh, 
There's, luckily, there's no peas in there. Yeah, that's right. We would have been stumbling all over that. Now, there's all kinds of there's a there's a you're you're judging a Roger and Jessica costume contest, right? I'm judging a. Uh, they told me it was going to be a Jessica Rabbit lookalike contest. Oh, oh and um, well, I I got to tell you, I. I mean, you three guys show up wearing red wigs and low-cut red dresses. I guarantee all three of you honorable mentions. All right. I can be bought. I'm shopping tomorrow. Well, I'm six foot eleven, so I'm very convincing as a really <laughs> well, tall right. redhead. You know, she's, yeah, she's really tall. So, uh, that'll be that'll be a lot of fun, and that'll be a lot of fun. I think there's going to be a panel discussion both days at uh, noon. I, I, I uh, with me, Charlie, and you know, a bunch of other uh, uh, film people talk about Roger and the movie and all that kind of stuff. I, I got to tell you, if you've never if you've never been up close and personal with Charlie Fleischer. It's worth the price of admission because the guy is just hilarious. He is he is just like the funniest, funniest guy I've ever met in my life. Uh well, I cannot wait. Cannot wait. Um, so it's they. I don't know if they just added this or whatever, but if you go five dollars off your admission if you bring a kid's coat to support. Uh, oh, I don't know about that. I just saw that's on their website. So uh, it's the Shriners Auditorium, in Wilmington, Mass. But uh, yeah, if you bring a kid's coat, they're going to donate that to. Um, coach for kids and uh, you get five bucks off and hey you get to do something charitable yep absolutely um and gary k wolf will be there billy west charlie Viter, uh all sorts of marky ramon marky ramon yes yeah <laughs> this is it's all sorts of and of course you and i are gonna sing together oh hey <laughs> now that's where they're right there <laughs> yeah really <laughs> well Thank and, you so and if 10,000 people show up expecting to see me sing with Marky Ramon, they're going to be really disappointed. So. Uh, you have to. You said it. It's 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 on tape now. It's oh, out there. It's on the internet. I better start working on my... <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. I yeah, know thanks, you're Gary. probably... Yeah, thanks. You've been, you've been very gracious here telling us these great stories. I'm going to go check these gags in the margin now. Uh, so... I hope you had a. I hope you had fun. We will. I had a lot of fun. You guys are great. Oh, thank you. It's great. I mean, we're we're definitely fans. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. That's all I can say. We'll de- we'll see you this weekend though. I'll definitely stop by. You have do you have like a table too, or are you just kind of like hanging? Well, I, out? I, the, the Gary uh, Gary Summers who runs it usually gives me a table, and um, I, I sell books, and uh, you know I autograph pictures and hang out with the fans. Oh, that's great! Cool. I got to tell you, it's 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 going to be fun for me because I haven't done one of these for a long time. And when I did the last one, people were not coming to them in costume. Oh well, that's yeah, yeah. that's the thing. That's, that's changed, and I'm kind of looking right. forward to that. The opposite know? now. Yeah, I know. Now everybody is in costume. It's, yeah, I know. Hopefully, oh, they're dressed know, like Jessica. I'm going to wear them. <laughs> well, um, it should be a good time. I can't wait. We'll be there as well. I guess we have a some sort of table as well. But yeah, if you're selling books, whew, I'll I'll be there. Uh, All right. Yeah. So again, thank you so much, uh, Josh Clay. Do you have any final uh, final thoughts or anything I just else? Thank to- Gary again, and yeah, we'll see oh, you yeah. at the con and check out their website because uh, there's we're doing the 75 years of Marvel panel. Excuse me, 75 cool. years of Marvel. Yes, we and, are. Uh, yeah, it'd be fun. All right. Great. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, we'll see you Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Guys, thanks. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot. Of, it was an honor. <laughs>